the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Today we're going to talk with Denise Harley, legal counsel with Alliance Defending Freedom where she's a member of the Center for Life. We're going to talk about Selena Soul. She's a high school student. She's challenging the federal Title IX um, with a complaint on transgender athletes depriving girls or women from the opportunity to, um, to compete. We're also going to talk with Bob Riken. He's vice president of Christian Mission Advancement and chaplain at the Columbia Willamette YMCA. Now, those initials might be familiar to you, but what they stand for may be less familiar, particularly that C in YMCA. We're going to talk about an emphasis that's being restored and what's happening with the Columbia Willamette YMCA. Again, Bob Riken will join us. At five o'clock. So looking forward to um, to talking with him. First, a look at some of the day's headlines. President Trump formally launched his 2020 reelection campaign last night before a jam packed crowd in Orlando's Amway Center Center rather and quickly unloaded on the media organizations and government actors. He said tried the hardest to bring down both his candidacy and then presidency with the Russian collusion scandal, saying our patriotic movement has been under assault from the very first day. He specifically called out the phony dossier used by the FBI to secure a secret surveillance warrant to surveil one of his former aides, Carter Page. To supporters' delight, the president then went on, or candidate Trump, uh, even debuted a new impersonation of Hillary Clinton, who, by the way, is not on the ticket on the Democrat side. Well, for the most part, Tuesday's rally focused on Trump's policy successes from criminal justice reform to the economy. He also touted the planned Space Force, celebrated the obliteration of ISIS and Republicans' role in a newly uh, energized national pro-life movement after polling the boisterous crowd. Trump appeared to settle on a new campaign slogan, Keep America Great. Still, not everyone loves the new Trump rally and cry. In an op-ed in the opinion section of FoxNews.com, contributor DeRoy Murdoch explains why he believes the president needs a better re-election campaign slogan and what it should be. You can check that out on their website. Top Republicans are urging Democratic leadership to condemn Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's remarks comparing detention facilities on the southern border to concentration camps. The um, uh, representative on Monday told her Instagram followers on a live stream that the U.S. government is running concentration camps on our southern border. If you know anything about Auschwitz and what concentration camps were in the uh, in the Second World War, you understand the historic reference was, well, silly, to put it mildly. Representative Liz Cheney said AOC's remarks disrespect history and disregard what happened during the Holocaust. It's a total disregard to the facts, in particular about the Holocaust. But also you see the extent to which her colleagues and the people who are supposed to be leading the Democrats in the House, Speaker Pelosi, Steny Hoyer, won't stand up and criticize what she's saying and condemn those comments. House Republican caucus chairwoman said in an interview on the story with Martha McCallum and slavery reparations were the center of a debate during a scheduled hearing today before a House Judiciary Subcommittee. During that uh, time, after being treated as fringe issue reparations increasingly 
has been discussed by the mainstream of the Democratic Party. Several 2020 Democratic presidential candidates have endorsed looking at the idea, though they have stopped short of endorsing direct payouts for African-Americans. Still, the nation remains divided on the issue, even within the, uh, the black community, as illustrated by remarks ahead of uh, the hearing by Senator Cory Booker, a 2020 Democratic presidential candidate, and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. In addition to Booker, actor and activist Danny Glover and writer Tanishi Coates are also among the witnesses who testified at that hearing. President Trump and Chinese President Xi Jinping have agreed to meet in Japan and discuss trade at the G20 summit amid a weeks-long stalemate on negotiations and tension over looming new tariffs on China. On Tuesday, the president tweeted that he and Xi had had very good telephone conversations. We will be having an extended meeting next week at the G20 in Japan, the president tweeted. Our our respective teams will begin talks prior to our meeting. And President Trump abruptly announced on Tuesday that Acting Defense Secretary Patrick Shanahan is withdrawing from the consideration to lead the Pentagon, and he's naming Secretary of the Army Mark Esper as Shanahan's replacement. While speculation had brewed for days about his status, the announcement came shortly after the publication of an explosive USA Today report that the FBI has been probing a violent domestic dispute from 2010 between Shanahan and his then-wife as part of his background investigation. Speaking to reporters outside the White House, the president said it's a difficult time for Pat, adding Shanahan uh, would take some time off for family matters in a resignation letter on Tuesday. Shanahan said it is unfortunate that a painful and deeply personal family situation from long ago is being dredged up and painted in an incomplete and therefore misleading way in the course of this process. Uh, He did also say that the charges against him were dropped, but charges were levied against his then wife for um, domestic violence. The Washington Post reports that the EPA finalized its biggest climate policy rollback on Wednesday, requiring the U.S. power sector to cut its 2030 carbon emissions 35 percent over 2005 levels. The Post laments that the affordable clean energy rule demands much smaller carbon dioxide reductions than the industry is already on track to achieve, even without any federal regulation. So why is it complaining is the question that looms. Meanwhile, Governor Andrew Cuomo said he has reached an agreement with legislative leaders over a bill to slash New York's greenhouse gas emissions, setting the stage for one of the most significant state climate victories since President Trump took office. E&E News reveals the legislation calls for reducing emissions by 40 percent from 1990 levels by 2030 and 85 percent by 2050. The remaining 15 percent of emissions would be offset, making the state carbon neutral. The bill would also require that all electric uh, electricity generation come from carbon free sources by 2040. Now, we don't yet have the technology to actually achieve that. So it is wishful thinking. And perhaps uh, the hope is that the law would result in uh, that discovery. Well, China and the United States are rekindling trade talks. As I mentioned, uh, they're meeting next week when the president of this United States and Xi Jinping um, uh, are going to meet cheering financial markets on hopes that an escalating trade war between the two countries will be abated. But only time will tell. The top members of the Senate Appropriations Committee have struck a deal on the president's request for more funding tied to the U.S.-Mexico border after weeks of stalemate. The deal would provide uh, Trump more than $4.5 billion for the border funding package. 
And the uh, Trump administration is looking for ways to alleviate the crush of asylum-seeking migrants at the United States' southern border without being granted additional resources. They're considering opening a series of immigration courts at key border checkpoints to speed the asylum process by offering quick adjudication of asylum claims. And federal authorities seized 15,000 kilos of cocaine, worth as much as $1 billion, at a Philadelphia shipping port, according to officials. Imagine the damage that could have done and does do in so many other ports in so many other ways. We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Again, uh, later this hour, we'll talk with Denise Harley. She's legal counsel with Alliance Defending Freedom, where she's a member of the Center for Life. We're going to talk about a high school student uh, filing a complaint on uh, transgender athletes depriving girls or women of the opportunity uh, to compete. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 20 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the House voted uh, Tuesday to block the Pentagon's new transgender troop policy, taking a swipe at the president and his move to ban transgender service in the military. Well, during the debate on the $1 trillion spending package, lawmakers voted 243 to 183 to adopt an amendment from Representative Jackie Spire to block funding to implement the new policy. And the um, House on Tuesday rejected an amendment that would have limited the government's ability to collect Americans' personal communications without a warrant. Congress last year reauthorized Section 702 of FISA with few alterations after a bitter battle between private um, uh, privacy activists and security hawks in both chambers. And on this day... Back in 1865, Union troops arrive in Galveston, Texas, with news that the Civil War is over and that all remaining slaves in Texas are free. The event is celebrated to this day as Juneteenth within the African-American community. And on this day in 1934, the Federal Communications Commission is created. It replaces the Federal Radio Commission. On this day in 1952, the U.S. Army Special Forces, the elite unit of fighters known as the Green Berets, is established at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. I like Special Forces so much more than Green Beret as a way of describing it. On this day in 1953, Julius Rosenberg, 35, and his wife Ethel, 37, convicted of conspiring to pass U.S. atomic secrets to the Soviet Union, they were executed at Sing Sing Prison in Ossining, New York. And on this day in 1964, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 is approved after surviving an 83-day filibuster in the U.S. Senate. Well, as mentioned, President Trump launched his reelection bid on Tuesday by calling his presidency a defining moment in American history and pleading for another four years to finish off a Washington swamp that is viciously safeguarding its clout. Rallying in the background state of Florida, Mr. Trump fixated on Democrats in ominous terms, accusing a cabal of opponents of trying to upend the American way of life and revert to a nation that fails to put its own citizens first. They want to destroy you and destroy our country, he said, as we know it. Not acceptable. It's not going to happen, he told supporters in Orlando's Orlando's Amway Center, which seats nearly 20,000 people. First Lady Melania Trump, Vice President Mike Pence, and his wife Karen attended the raucous event, which featured chants of four more years in USA, USA from a red sea of supporters in MAGA hats. He road tested his old slogan about making America versus uh, making America great versus keep America great, which the latter seemed to win out uh, with deafening cheers. It's not clear whether or not he will make any changes. The president said voters could be crazy not to reward him for two and a half years of progress in creating jobs, 
gutting Obamacare, appointing conservative judges and building a border wall with Mexico. And he urged supporters to hit the ballot box in November 2020 to help him continue his momentum as he works out a series of thorny trade deals with North American neighbors, China and others. It has begun in earnest when both sides have declared. And that has now happened. Well, hours after he formally kicked off his 2020 re-election campaign, a new national poll offers some encouraging numbers for him. The release Wednesday of the Suffolk University survey for USA Today comes a day after another poll in the crucial presidential battleground state of Florida showed the president trailing and as several other polls have similarly shown high-profile Democrat candidates ahead. But the USA Today Suffolk University survey showed 49 percent of Americans approved of the job Trump's doing as president with 48 percent giving him a thumbs down. That's a more positive showing for Trump compared with the other recent polling of the presidential approval rating. It's not uncommon when an announcement and a major event takes place that there is a bump in the polls. The real question is whether or not that will be maintained over uh, over time. As we mentioned uh, earlier, the Democrats are going to begin their first uh, debate uh, that's coming up next week, and that will be an opportunity for a bump for at least some of the uh, many candidates, I think there are 20 of them that will be participating, maybe uh, slightly fewer than that. In any event, um, that will begin uh, next week, and it will only get more raucous, I would imagine, moving forward. Well, the question is, can the president really deport millions of illegal immigrants, as he announced in a tweet just days ago, he intends to do, and it will start right away. Well, right now, a million illegal immigrants have exhausted all their legal appeals and yet still live in the United States, particularly thanks to lackluster deportation efforts by the Obama administration. Well, a senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation uh, was asked about this and what the president can and cannot um, uh, can and cannot do with regard to the announcement that was made, uh, saying that he will intend uh, that he intends rather to um, deport millions. Uh, Von Spakovsky uh, says that he suspects what he's probably referring to, and that has since been confirmed, is the fact that there are over one million unenforced deportation orders sitting over at the Department of Homeland Security. If you can believe it, one million of them. And it is those deportation uh, orders that he is referring to. Uh, These are deportation orders issued by federal immigration judges. So these are on aliens who have completely exhausted the legal process. They've had a hearing. A judge has heard their claims that they are entitled to be in the United States. And after reviewing all of the evidence, immigration judges have said, no, you're not eligible to be in the United States. And they've issued a final order saying that person can be deported and basically immediately removed from the United States states. Now, if you're wondering how there could possibly be a million unenforced orders like this, they just kind of build up over the, at the Department of Homeland Security from the previous administration through this one, because uh, what happens is the immigration judges send their orders over to the Department of ha- Homeland Security, and then it's up to the department to enforce the order, pick up the uh, individuals, put them on a plane or whatever to get them out of the country. The previous administration wasn't really interested in informing, enforcing rather the uh, immigration laws. Um, And they didn't do uh, very much about the deportation order. So if the president wants to do something immediately, uh, there are a million illegal aliens with removal orders that can be sent out of the country immediately. And that has since been confirmed by others in the administration pointing to uh, and trying to clarify what the president announced, um, that that is the population that he apparently was referring to. Now, until the actual order moves forward and efforts to deport are actually taking place. Can we confirm that that is what was being referenced and what will be done? It's also possible that nothing will happen. So again, we'll have to keep our eyes on 
that developing story. The president's former communications director, Hope Hicks, was questioned behind closed doors today by members of the House Judiciary Committee as part of the panel review of obstruction allegations in special counsel Robert Mueller's report. Less than an hour into the interview, some Democrats said Hicks, who is now the chief communications officer at the Fox Corporation, was following White House orders to stay quiet about her time as an aide to Trump. She's objecting to stuff that's already in the public record, said one California Democrat. It's pretty ridiculous. Some argue that having the hearing at all was pretty ridiculous, so you can pick your side. House Judiciary Committee Chairman Gerald Nadler declined to comment on the substance of the interview so far, saying... All I'll say is uh, Ms. Hicks is answering questions put to her and the interview continues. Well, in a letter Tuesday to Nadler, White House counsel Pat Cipollone uh, wrote that Trump had directed Hicks not to answer questions relating to the time of her service as a senior advisor to the president. He said Hicks is absolutely immune from compelled testimony with respect to her service to the president because of the separation of powers between the executive and legislative branches. The White House has similarly cited broad executive privilege with respect to many of the the Democrats' investigative demands, using the president's power to withhold information to protect the confidentiality of the Oval Office decisions, a decision-making process. Now, this is very common uh, that the executive protects that uh, ability to communicate without um, later disclosures. So this is not unique to Donald Trump. It was uh, practiced during the Obama administration as well as the Bush administrations and many before. Democrats say they disagree that Hicks' answers were covered by such immunity or privilege, especially since she's already cooperated with Mueller, which is detailed in the report, which raised questions among Republicans. Then why is she here? Republicans on the committee see the interview as a, in a different light, arguing that Hicks' testimony is consistent with what we already laid out in the Mueller report and calling the interview a waste of time. So again, pick your side and you can stand your ground there. We're going to take a break in just a moment, uh, but a reminder that coming up in the final segment of this hour, we'll talk with Denise Harley. She's legal counsel with Alliance Defending Freedom. A high school student, Selena Soul, and several other courageous young women are challenging the uh, uh, this district that they uh, school district that they uh, have attended and are appealing to the Department of Education. To revisit Title IX in complaining against uh, or about transgender athletes, depriving them of opportunities to excel in athletics. So we'll talk with her about that a bit later in this hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 33 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the question of slavery reparations for African Americans was the subject of a fiery and emotional House Judiciary Committee hearing today as Democrats called for measures to address America's original sin, while Republicans described the payments as an injustice and almost certainly unconstitutional. The Constitution, Civil Rights and Civil Liberties Subcommittee held the hearing on H.R. 40, a bill by Representative Sheila Jackson Lee, a Democrat out of Texas, to set up a committee mission to study and develop a response to the question of reparations for slavery. So this would not have granted reparations, but would have established a commission to study the, the notion. Democrats, uh, such as former uh, President Barack Obama and 2016 presidential candidate Hillary Clinton, opposed 
this kind of costly plan in the past, but with a steady shift in the party to the left, the issue has been given new life with endorsements from 2020 hopefuls and others, though details remain vague as to what form such uh, reparations would take, with estimates for a controversial direct payment to slave descendants running into the trillions. The role of the federal government is supporting the institution of slavery and subsequent discrimination directed against blacks is an injustice that must be formally acknowledged and addressed. Representative Jackson Lee said, I just simply ask, why not and why not now? Senator Cory Booker, who's running for president and has introduced a version of her bill in the Senate, said it's wrong to present the issue as one American writing a check for another and called on lawmakers to deal with what he said is continued racism in America. Citing racial disparities on issues such as health and education, he said America has a criminal justice system that is indeed a form of the new Jim Crow. Well, there were those who spoke, African-American and otherwise, against reparations, uh, and there were those who spoke in favor of um, the hearing was rather raucous and it won't be the final word, uh, but this was the first hearing to determine whether or not a, a focus group, if you will, should be appointed a commission to look into the question. Meanwhile, a review of American history and the nation's relationships to African-Americans reveals a slow and often bloody march to equality. Today is the 19th of June for some in the African-American community who are descended from slaves. It is Juneteenth. Uh, in a uh, now famous letter that President Abraham Lincoln wrote to Horace Greeley, editor of the New York Tribune, Lincoln noted that his primary mission was to save the Union and that he would do so whether it meant freeing some slaves, all slaves, or not one single slave. It is a d- disappointing statement made by the former president who is uh, attributed with ending slavery. The bloody Civil War raged for three years before Lincoln declared some of the enslaved people free. The Emancipation Proclamation did not free all enslaved people. However, it did free those held as slaves within rebellious states, but slavery remained legal in states loyal to the Union. The Fourth of July is the day most Americans celebrate independence, but African Americans in large part would argue that an equally important date is Juneteenth. On June 19, 1865, General Gordon Granger stood on a balcony in Galveston, Texas, and read what he called the General Order Number 3. And it read, The people of Texas are informed that, in accordance with a proclamation from the Executive of the United States, all slaves are free. This is the first time it was ever stated that all slaves, not just some under certain circumstances in certain geographical areas, but all slaves are free. This involves an absolute equality of personal rights and rights of property between former masters and slaves, and the connection heretofore existing between them becomes that between employer and hired labor. The freedoms, uh, the freedmen rather, are advised to remain quietly at their present homes and work for wages. They are informed that they will not be allowed to collect at military posts and that they will not be supported in idleness either there or elsewhere. While this was a very bold and necessary statement, it didn't quite translate Uh, That way, in some cases, slaves were just simply let go to wander and fend for themselves in a country they had never had freedom in. Just finding your way from one place to another was something of a challenge. Well, General Robert E. Lee surrendered to General Ulysses S. Grant in April of 1865 at Appomattox Courthouse in Virginia. Granger read the order more than two months after the official end of the Civil War. Those words didn't immediately establish freedom and equality any more than the Declaration of Independence or the uh, Emancipation Proclamation had. The order did become one more document that moved America one step closer to the aspirational goal of being one perfect union where all men are created equal, a move in that right direction. Well, during the Jim Crow era, which lasted far too long, celebrations of Juneteenth waned. 
um, the struggles and injustice of that time gave little cause for jubilation. But this present era is a different story. As a 21st century African-American, um, we haven't yet achieved the aspirational goal of being a perfect union where all are treated equally. That applies not just to race, but so many other elements as well. However, Juneteenth is celebrated as the beginning of America's great course correction toward justice and equality. Today, African-Americans celebrate the lowest unemployment rate in generations. And according to U.S. Black Chamber of Commerce, Black-owned businesses have grown at an exponential rate in the 21st century. School choice is opening doors of educational opportunity to black families serving to level the playing field. There's an often uh, reprinted Juneteenth photo of elderly blacks standing proudly at a celebration in their Sunday best. The photo was taken in Austin, Texas in 1900, just 35 years after Granger shared the news of freedom. Most likely, it would have been among the 250,000 enslaved people who learned of their freedom on that day. They each stare sternly at the camera, daring future generations to squander the opportunities of freedom. Today, If you celebrate uh, Juneteenth with the hundreds of thousands of others who did not have the advantages and opportunities that we have today, it is a reminder of the tremendous responsibility for those who came after our enslaved forebears. Our economy is strong right now, but so is the possibility that it may have an Achilles heel, and that would be the national debt. That was the consensus of participants in a recent panel discussion. The unmatched power and recently strong economic growth of the United States masks a dangerous hazard that could lead to our collective downfall. The panel agreed, and it left unchecked debt could threaten the prosperity of future generations. Justin Boggy and Benjamin Paris say this about that. It's a bipartisan issue, the panel pointed out. Americans agree in overwhelming numbers, as in 94 percent of Republicans and 92 percent of Democrats, according to a recent poll by the Peter Peterson Foundation, that future generations will be better off if the national debt is managed. Mark Goldwine, senior vice president and senior policy director at the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget, said at the event that national debt crowds out investment as investors purchase government bonds rather than buying private assets or otherwise investing in the private sector. Over time, he argued, that could result in slower wage growth, slower income growth, and a smaller overall economy. Deficits um, spending tends to promote consumption, whereas the private investment that he believes is crowded out otherwise would go toward elements of economic growth, such as buildings, equipment, tools, software, and education. Every bond issued by government might mean a factory that doesn't open, a building that doesn't get built, a worker who doesn't get trained. Meanwhile, deficit spending most often feeds less productive parts of the economy, such as public housing, college funding, and entitlement-based consumption. The debt also exerts pressure on the U.S. government. Goldwine, he said spending on interest on the debt will exceed Medicaid within a year, within a year. In just five years, it will overtake all defense spending, creating a potential threat to national security. In 30 years, it is projected to be the single largest federal expenditure. Again, the debt. Monetary institutions also feel the pressure, as Romina Baccia Uh, Fiscal says that fiscal irresponsibility encourages loose and corrupt policy from the Federal Reserve and drives it out of independence. Already, Fed Chair Jerome Powell has made the Federal Reserve crisis policies permanent, choosing not to sell off the glut of assets it purchased during the recession. 
It all has consequences. And although the tax cuts and the Job Act of 2017 propelled strong economic growth and decades-low unemployment rates, current economic growth does not mean the debt is irrelevant. High debt causes an erosion of economic stability and government ab- government's ability rather, to act in times of crisis until, as Goldwine said, like the frog in the boiling water, we may not notice until it's too late. What does too late look like? Well, a spike in interest rates or another kind of shock to the the bond market could likely cause a crisis to the top, uh, to top rather the Great Recession, according to Goldwine. As David Ditch uh, notes, the looming bankruptcy of Social Security and Medicare could require the government to drastically increase deficits over a short period, possibly precipitating such a crisis. Well, these programs are popular, but as Ditch said, a typical American makes fifty thousand dollars annually, getting up in the morning, going to work putting in a nine-to-five grind, getting up the next morning and doing it again and again for an entire year. Entitlement spending and other high expenditures are pushing the deficit to $1 trillion, which would be $20 million, um, million people's worth of uh, effort added to the debt, a high danger to human cost that politicians rarely acknowledge and voters rarely act on. Well, to defend against the risks of high national debt, the country has to protect from uh, to be protected, rather, from the federal government's uh, proclivity for unfunded spending. Ditch likened the U.S. budget process to an all-you-can-eat buffet of deficit spending and argues that the government needs a proverbial diet. Bacha, she highlighted fiscal restraint like those in Switzerland, Sweden, and Germany as examples of how such a diet might work. The restraints work, she said, because they stick to it and allow flexibility to deal with crises. And they could work here, too, if Congress is willing to abide by their terms. Uh, And the panelists agreed. Well, the less significant entitlement reforms are implemented now before America's fiscal position becomes too treacherous. The only option available to lawmakers could be to drastically increase taxes, cut government services or both. More spending. Well, more spending now means higher taxes and a poorer quality of life for future Americans. It's up to all of us to save the country from its Achilles heel itself. If America cannot stop its debt from destroying its economy, then it will be condemned to the same fate as Achilles in Plutus, remembered only for his timely and deserved demise. And that could well be our future if left unchecked. Uh, Before we uh, go to break here in just a moment, I wanted to let you know that, in fact, Oregon has removed the assisted suicide weight for gravely ill people that we weren't uh, warned about here on the program. It was uh, Tuesday. The Oregon House sent the governor that measure uh, to amend the state's assisted suicide law by removing the waiting period for people who have less than 15 days to live. And, of course, that's an estimate because no one actually knows. It's a move that opponents say amounts to an expansion of Oregon's Death with Dignity Act, arguing the measure removes critical safeguards in current law um, meant to ensure people are confident in their decision. And uh, that is going to become the law of the land, assuming the governor intends to sign it. It is currently on her desk. Up next, we're going to talk with Denise Harley, legal counsel with Alliance Defending Freedom. What's a girl to do when she has to compete against a guy and the guy physically, strength-wise, testosterone-wise, wins every race, depriving her and some of her sisters of the opportunity to not only compete, but to be seen by recruiters who would recruit women. We'll get into all of that in just a few moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, a female high school athlete who didn't qualify for a track event because two boys who identified as girls ran faster uh, filed a complaint on Monday with the Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights. And I have to tell you, I was an athlete in high school. I ran for the University of Oregon rather successfully. And this irks me because I, I understand the challenge that she and other uh, girls and women are facing in high school and beyond. Selena Soul was uh, said during an interview uh, last night with Tucker Carlson that no one in the state of Connecticut is happy about this, but no one has enough courage to speak up. Well, Selena and a few other high school girls have had the courage to speak up. And here to talk with us about that is Denise Harley, legal counsel with Alliance Defending Freedom, where she is a member of the Center for Life, uh, to talk about Selena Soul and her uh, sisters, if you will, a challenge to Title IX and the Department of Education. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Well, this, uh, this seems so absurd, and yet this is the time that we're living in. Explain to us Selena's complaint and those of other girls, some of whom have been uh, loath to actually speak up about the challenge. Sure. Well, as you just explained to your listeners, Selena is a high school track athlete who has worked very hard for years and years perfecting her craft and pursuing her passion. And she was very close to the opportunity to move on to regionals, but instead of placing in the top six so that she could move on, she came in eighth because two boys decided they were going to compete against the girl based on their um, identifying as transgender. So what we've done is we've filed a Title IX complaint with the federal government, um, essentially arguing that this violates Title IX because the entire purpose of Title IX is to give girls equal opportunities in sports and education. Absolutely. It's not just a matter of losing a race or taking eighth place in a race, but it deprived her the opportunity of being seen by uh, college coaches at the New England regionals that can translate into a, a scholarship. I ran, I was on scholarship at the University of Oregon. I would have been very frustrated if I'd been deprived of that opportunity because I was competing against boys. Now, I heard one transgender uh, male suggest that he's at a disadvantage because he's in the process of taking drugs that is reducing his testosterone. So he is on the decline and therefore he's at a greater disadvantage to girls than girls are who are fully intact and were born female. Your response to that charge? Well, the science and the reality just don't bear that out. For example, one of these boys this year alone broke 10 state records that had previously been held by girls who had achieved those records over the course of 20 years. We all know that boys have physical advantages over girls based on the testosterone that's been in their system since they were in the womb. Now, since Congress passed Title IX in 1972, the number of women and girls participating in sports has risen from one in 27 to two in five. And Title IX was specifically um, established to encourage the opportunities of women to compete in athletics and for there to be a level playing field. This really flies in the face of what Title IX is all about. What does this challenge um, do? That's right. Women have fought long and hard to get equal opportunities. And something like this that forces females to compete against males is a huge step backwards after all of this progress. It's going to end up meaning that girls are on the sidelines because for every boy on the podium, that's one less girl on the podium. So our complaint is going to initiate an investigation by the federal government's Office of Civil Rights. They will then investigate the Connecticut Interscholastic Athletic Association and hopefully instruct the association to abide by Title IX and allow girls to 
only competing against other girls in girls' sports. Now, how optimistic are you that the Department of Education will interpret this in light of its original meaning rather than revise Title IX in their thinking, given mores that have been established since it was established? We're actually very confident and very optimistic. Because, again, when you look at the language of Title IX, which refers to sexes, male and female, and when you look at the entire purpose of Title IX, we're extremely hopeful that the federal government is going to affirm that Title IX means boys and girls have separate sports. Now, one of the things that was uh, really surprising to me was to learn that when she voiced her concern, her complaint, if you will, uh, that she was singled out and mistreated by coaches and others within the school uh, district that she attended. Yes, it's really sad. Um, One of the reasons Selena is so courageous is because she anticipated, and she was right, uh, a very negative response from coaches and school administrators, even the principal. Um, She's been treated really unfairly, been retaliated against by these adults, simply for speaking up and asking for a level playing field. Um, But at the same time, she's received overwhelming support by all the girls on her team and from people around the state who just want to see girls be able to chase their dreams and pursue the opportunities that they've worked so hard for. I I recall Navratilova, the tennis player, uh, who is a a lesbian, spoke up uh, suggesting that it was absurd that women would have to compete against biological males uh, and she uh, received a significant backlash for stating what for many of us seems uh, like the obvious. Are we moving in a direction in which biology is less likely to, to matter? And uh, again, I, I just ask if you're optimistic that this case can have an impact across country and not just in Connecticut, uh, giving girls once again the opportunity to compete in athletics without fear of um, having to come up against someone who is biologically superior. Well, this is the first incident that we've seen actually have a a legal process initiated. So we are hopeful that this will set the tone. Things have changed very rapidly in our society um, and maybe have gotten a little bit out of our grip. But the biology hasn't changed. The reality hasn't changed. And when we look at the progress that women have made over decades and decades, including through Title IX and other civil rights laws, um, I think it's very clear that we are going to be going backwards if we do something to eliminate the difference between girls and boys. In fact, women will lose all the protections and the special opportunities that we have. So, again, I am optimistic, and because this is the first case of its kind, I'm hopeful we'll see other incidents like this coming to a stop. So what happens next? What should we look and listen for? Um, We'll just be looking and listening for the results of the Title IX investigation, um, and, and perhaps, you know, if I'm being extremely optimistic, we could even see... The school, uh, the school athletic association, reversing its policy in light of the attention to this case and the clear violation of the law. Now that we filed this complaint, now I I didn't recall if she was a high school senior, if she'll have future opportunities to be seen. If in fact this decision uh, goes her way, is she going off to university, and has she ultimately been deprived of the opportunity to be seen by uh, universities for a future scholarship? Um, she's, she did not graduate this year. She's still in school. Um, but as you mentioned earlier, we'll never know the opportunities that she missed out on. We'll never know which recruiters might have seen her, which scholarships she might have been considered for, who might be you know, paying more attention to her and possibly giving her the opportunity to be a college athlete and go into a career in coaching and all of the other benefits that come along with being a student athlete. So it's it's hard to say what 
what opportunities all of these girls are losing when yeah. they're being forced to compete against boys who are frankly going to dominate them. Yeah, yeah. Well, I am so grateful that once again, Alliance Defending Freedom has stepped up and is providing an opportunity for this case to be heard by the Department of Education. And we'll certainly follow the story with, uh, with interest and hope for the right outcome. Thanks so much for sharing the story. Yeah, thank you for joining us. Appreciate it, Denise. Uh-huh. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Again, uh, Denise Harley is legal counsel with the Alliance Defending Freedom, where she's a member of the Center for Life. Uh, she is uh, talking about Selena Soul's federal Title IX complaint against uh, having to compete against uh, transgender athletes who dominate the girls. Uh, these are biological males, and they compete as biological males. Now, I said a few moments ago that who are you know referring to these males as physically superior, what I was referring to in terms of and in the context of athletic competition. Certainly, I'm not arguing that male physique is superior to uh, female, but in the, this context, uh, they certainly have some significant advantages. All right, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. When we return, we'll talk with Bob Riken, Vice President of Christian Mission and Advancement and Chaplain at the Columbia Willamette YMCA. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Portions of our program, by the way, are brought to you today by Zero Res. I don't know if you're aware of the fact, but the YMCA, uh, particularly the Columbia Willamette um, version of it, has been doing something rather significant over the last several years. Joining me in studio today is Bob Riken. He is the vice president of Christian Mission Advancement and chaplain at the Columbia Willamette YMCA. And I'm just delighted that finally you and I have an opportunity to have a conversation that we can share with our listeners. So welcome. Well, thank you. It's really nice to be out here on a nice Partly sunny, cloudy Oregon day (laughs) in late spring. And yeah, it's great being with you. Thank you. Well, I'd like to start with a little bit of history of the YMCA, because I think for my generation, we're familiar to some degree with the YMCA and its storied history uh, around the period of my parents in World War II and, and beyond. But for some of our listeners, the YMCA is simply a place where uh, kids can go for activity in the summertime. They can learn how to swim, uh, learn basketball, or, or, or something like that. But it really has a rather interesting history that dates all the way back to the early or the mid-19th century. Sure does. And in fact, this year, uh, YMCA nationally is celebrating their 175th year. And last year, uh, 2018, we celebrated our 150th anniversary here in Portland. Uh, the YMCA in Portland started in 1868. But the uh, a brief history of the Y yeah. is, is really uh, quite impressive, I think. Uh, started in 1844 by uh, a man named George Williams and 11 other businessmen who uh, moved into the London uh, community, London, uh, London England. Uh, they were a part of the Industrial Revolution. And... Uh, as they began to observe this influx of young men moving to urban environments from rural communities, uh, they began to observe kinds of things that uh, young men get involved in uh, when they do have a few little extra hours. Of course, during the Industrial Revolution, much of it was just work. Mm -hmm. But the few hours they uh, did have for free time, they ended up in the brothel or the bar. And uh, these uh, 11 businessmen, uh, Christian men, wanted to provide an alternative for these men And so they began to start prayer groups, Bible studies there in London, and hence uh, YMCA, Young Men's Christian Association. And that's where it was launched. And uh, a clipper ship captain, 
that ran a clipper ship from Boston, Massachusetts to London, across the Atlantic uh, over those years, observed what was happening there in London and carried that same concept then back to America. And the first YMCA in our country was started in Boston, uh, Massachusetts in 1851. And uh, that was the first establishment of the YMCA here in America. It began to move across the country. Uh, and uh, in 1868, a couple of businessmen from San Francisco uh, moved up uh, to Portland and they uh, put together uh, five churches here in the Portland area and they wrote a charter for a YMCA uh, in 1868. And that's how long the YMCA has been a part of our particular uh, particular city. So it's been uh, a long history. It's been established with a great Christian tradition and history and heritage. But uh, over the years, uh, that particular aspect of uh, the YMCA uh, began to be pushed aside. We, you can see that historically mm-hmm. uh, somewhere probably prior or post-World War I, prior to World War II. And, uh, and the sea became, in some cases, almost non-existent. Uh, the Y across the country uh, has had profound influence on our own society. Uh, I don't know if you're aware of this, but James Naismith uh, was uh, a YMCA director, and he was the one that invented basketball. I thought that was absolutely fascinating. Yeah, it really <laughs> but not is. just basketball. There are other sports that are associated with the Y as well. Other sports. William Morgan, I think, in 1895 uh, invented volleyball at a YMCA, and in 1950, uh, racquetball was in, was in, invented at a at a YMCA as well, and of course, you know, all of us we celebrated uh, uh, an event this last Sunday called Father's Day, and uh, it's interesting that that was started. Uh, most people feel at a YMCA, it's uh, it's become a national holiday. Third uh, Sunday in June, uh, some people think that the uh, Father's Day event uh, was started by a a church in Fairmont, West Virginia in 1808 uh, to commemorate the uh, unfortunate tragedy of 360 men who died in a mining accident uh, the year before. But uh, Sonora Dodd was the first to bring attention uh, to Father's Day, and she actually came up with the idea while she was listening to a Mother's Day sermon in 1909. And uh, she was thinking of her father, uh, Walter Smart, who was a Civil War veteran and a widower, and he was uh, raising six children. And uh, she shared that strong example of her dad with a group of ministers in Spokane, Washington, at a Spokane Y. And the first Father Day, Father's Day was celebrated uh, uh, in that facility June 17th, 1910. And it became then a national holiday in I think 1914, and President Lyndon Johnson issued a presidential proclamation, uh, uh, I think in 1966, uh, uh, proclaiming that the third Sunday of June would be a Father's Day celebration event. And so uh, I think the Y has had national influence, both in the sports arena as well as in our our own social context for impacting our, our society in a in a significant way. And so uh, that, that's, that's been a rich, long history and impact, I think, of the YMCA across our country. Now, there was a gathering, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, in 
Paris in, um, what, 1855, in which sort of the charter of what the YMCA was intended to be was outlined. It was a robust Christian core. It it recognized the need for a physical strength and uh, good character and all of that. And that, that still stands as an influencing uh, document that is referenced today. And in 1972, I think that was reaffirmed that the the Christian in YMCA or Christ in YMCA um, was to remain a, a, a core value of the organization. That really is. And of course, every year, each CEO of our uh, uh, of of the YMCA's across the country sign off on that as a document that they would support and adhere uh, to that uh, Paris basis. And of course, the uh, the national uh, mission uh, of the YMCA, uh, simply put, says that uh, we're to put Christian principles uh, into practice through programs that build a healthy spirit, mind, and body. And in I think it was 1995, the Board of Trustees here in Portland uh, wanted to make that Christian principle just a little bit more clear in people's minds. And so in our particular mission statement, we've added uh, five Christian principles, love, respect, honesty, responsibility, and service. And I think it's interesting that in those five dynamics that we see reflect our Christian principles in all we do in spirit, mind, and body uh, is it starts with love and it ends with service. And it seems to me it's quite interesting when you realize that uh, wherever you talk about where, or wherever love is talked about in the Bible, whether love for God or love for mankind, uh, that love is demonstrated by service. And so here we have in our mission statement, the Christian principles of love and service kind of bookending mm-hmm. our three others, respect, honesty, and responsibility. And so that certainly has continued to be a strong platform that CEOs across the country giving leadership to each of our associations uh, see this as an important part, although the functioning aspect of the Christian peace uh, in some measures has been pushed aside to some degree and uh, we are seeking to reestablish that in a significant way. Well, not just reestablish it here, but you're also having influence across the country. We'll talk about that in just a moment, but I do need to take a quick um, commercial break. Again, we're talking about the YMCA, the Young Men's Christian Association. It's not exclusive to men, but we've been talking a little bit about that history. When we come back, we'll talk about what's happening presently because it has been a relevant and influential uh, part of our culture for many years, and I see it reemerging in ways that we haven't perhaps recognized more recently. <clears throat> Bob Riken is my guest, Vice President of Christian Mission Advancement and Chaplain at the Columbia Willamette YMCA. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing a conversation with Bob Riken. He is the Vice President of Mission Advancement and Chaplain at the Columbia Willamette YMCA. We're, we were looking back a, a bit at the history of the YMCA, and just during the break, we were talking about the fact that many people that you encounter had assumed that YMC, the C, stood for community rather than Christ, which is um, the focus. Or Christian. Or Christian, really, yeah. yeah. Right, to Christian, yeah. um, which is the, the emphasis that you're restoring here in our community. Right, exactly. And it's, uh, again, uh, great to uh, have the conversation with many folk, laymen and women and uh, clergy around our Portland community. And uh, many of them uh, are mindful or aware or even had a 
in a, a YMCA experience in their mm-hmm. in their in their life. But uh, for many, uh, we're relatively unaware of what the <clears throat> excuse me what the C stood for, uh, Young Men's Christian Association. Yeah. So how do you go about restoring that emphasis in the 21st century in a, a program that is well known for um, the gymnasium, the swimming, and some of the other activities that you tend to associate with the YMCA? How do you begin uh, to reemphasize the Christian uh, focus of the YMCA? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. And uh, I think it really uh, stems from leadership. Uh, each YMCA is is unique in its own way. It has its own uh, board of trustees and its own CEO, its own strong leadership core. And so uh, throughout the country, I think the key is leadership. And uh, in 2004, I think it was when Bob Hall, our current CEO, uh, became the CEO, it was his commitment uh, to significantly bring back the C uh, in the YMCA. And so he, with the board of trustees, uh, went out and and received a grant from the Murdoch Trust, mm-hmm. and uh, from that grant, uh, they then created a position. Uh, the title of was Vice President of Mission Advancement and Chaplain, and the role of that particular person was then to uh, unapologetically begin to uh, seek to find ways in which that aspect of the YMCA can can again be uh, reestablished. And so um, they went out and uh, with the grant, uh, gracious grant from uh, the Murdoch Trust and hired their first uh, uh, chaplain in, I think it was 2005. And uh, it was interesting. I was then a part of a fairly large church on the west side of Portland and was part of a uh, church staff. I was responsible for all of our small group, adult small group ministry, mm-hmm. and it had grown to, uh, I don't know, uh, 115, 120 small groups. We had about 1,200, 1,400 adults in those. And one of the guys in one of those groups uh, was the COO of the Portland YMCA. And I remember regularly uh, going to him and saying, Dave, uh, you need to become a part of a small group leadership team and start your own small group. And he always gave me reasons why he 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 was not ready to do that, but uh, when they were ready to uh, launch this uh, chaplaincy, uh, Dave gave me a call one day and he said, "Bob, I'd like to have lunch with you." And I thought that that lunch was going to be a chance for us to then finally say he was willing to start a small group. Well, he had Bob Hall, the CEO, with him, <laughs> and that lunch then <laughs> turned out to be a a consideration. Would you consider Bob uh, investing in establishing uh, the C in our association through this position of vice president, mission advancement and chaplain. Well, we had just started a number of new small groups at the church I was part of. And I just felt at that time uh, I wasn't ready to do that. So we closed out the lunch, had a great separation and uh, they went out and hired their first uh, chaplain who began then to reestablish that Bob and I, Bob Hall and I though, continued to have an instant rapport together. And periodically over the months, I would give him a call and we would talk and see how the thing, uh, how, how the chaplain work was going. And I remember one day distinctly uh, coming to my office and having this uh, impression to call Bob Hall at the YMCA. Uh, it was kind of a, uh, a moment where I was wondering if maybe God was in my own life 
uh, looking to maybe change some of the things that I was doing uh, in ministry. Mm -hmm. And uh, long story short, uh, his uh, administrator happened to be sick that day. Uh, I thought I would probably just get her on the phone and we would set an appointment together and the phone call went directly into Bob's office. And so now here I was speaking with uh, Bob Hall and uh, I shared with him this impression that I had and uh, just wondered to know if there would be uh, anything at the YMCA that would uh, fit uh, Bob Reich. And uh, you have to know Bob Hall. Um, he's very gracious and uh, uh, cordial and he, uh, indicated to me, well, he said, Bob, things are going pretty well, and uh, but uh, let's keep in touch. And toward the end of that conversation, he did tell me that he said, well, I'm really glad you called because in uh, tomorrow I'm going to be leaving for a couple weeks vacation, and if you'd have called me tomorrow, I'd have been gone. And he said, I tell you what, I'll pray about it, and we'll give some thought, and maybe when I get back from my vacation, we can get together. Hung up the phone and kind of thought that was kind of an interesting conversation, <laughs> uh, but uh, kind of promptly forgot about that. Well, two weeks to the day, I get back to my office at the church, and there's a message to call Bob Hall at the YMCA. Long story short, I gave him a call, and I remember some of the first words out of his mouth where he said, Bob, he said, God works in mysterious ways. And I said, oh, really? Tell me about it. He said, well, as you remember our conversation two weeks ago, he said it was kind of interesting, but he said I was leaving on vacation at that time. And he said, maybe we could get together and talk uh, when I got back. And he said, this is my first day back. And sitting on my desk was a letter of resignation <laughs> of the chaplain. And he said, could we have lunch tomorrow? And I said, well, I think we can. And then that started a, about a two-month process of, of, of interviews and other kinds of things, hoops to jump through. And in, uh, I think it was uh, 2007, I became then actually the second VP of Mission Advancement and Chaplain for the YMCA. And our role in that particular uh, title is relatively twofold. The chaplaincy I see as sort of like the volunteer fire department. You're on call for various kinds of crisis needs that happen in a large association or even small, but we have a fairly large association, some 50, 60,000 members, 700 staff. Uh, so we have a lot of folk mm -hmm. that we oversee and uh, issues of family, uh, personnel, uh, crises, uh, and uh, that would come up. And so the chaplaincy part would be serving that kind of need in our both membership as well as staff. The mission advancement piece would be uh, looking through our various works of ministry, uh, our, our child care programs, uh, which actually is the largest provider of child care in the Portland area. We serve about 4,000 uh, kids a week in our child care mm. and after school enrichment program. Uh, our youth sports, we run about 14,000 through our youth sports programs, both on the east side and west side of Portland. Uh, our health and wellness facilities, we have three of them, one in Vancouver, uh, the Beaverton Hoop in Beaverton and in Sherwood, our Sherwood Family YMCA. And we serve about 30,000 uh, families in those three facilities. We have a camping program, uh, Camp Collins, uh, over 90 years old, uh, will serve about 14,000 day and resident campers uh, throughout the year. And then our new Duncan Woods uh, camp, which is just below Mount Hood, it's 160 acres that was given to us. And we are in the process of developing a camp there. It'll be a few years before it really 
begins to become a strong uh, work, but we are going to have a couple of, 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 of camping experiences even this summer um, for underprivileged youth, and that is going to be a camp that will be developing. We had a third camp as well, Camp Meham, uh, and it started in 1909. And we had, over the decades, literally hundreds and thousands of family campers, youth campers, a part of that uh, program. It was nestled along the shores of Spirit Lake, right nestled Mm. below Mount St. Helens. And, of course, we're all aware of what happened in 1980, May 18th, when Mount St. Helens blew. And our camp was a direct line into that blast. And so instantly, uh, Camp Mayhem became no more and spirit lake was reconfigured and so that mm-hmm. camp is no longer a part but those are uh, a breadth of works and folks that we minister uh, to in any number of ways and so this uh, this focus of of ministry advancement uh, of of the chaplaincy is to then begin to develop programs where you could go into one of our facilities and sign up for a spinning class or an aerobics class or a swimming class. But we would offer other kinds of Christian programming. Voluntary, uh, people can sign up for Bible studies. Uh, We do various kinds of outreach programs. And we even have a church partnership where a church is using our facility up in Vancouver uh, as actually the facility to house their worship services on Sunday morning. And over the course of a number of years, it's been a great relationship. They've baptized hundreds of people in our swimming pool, and we have a great relationship with them. We have a part-time chaplain in our Sherwood work down in Sherwood, and we have a number of kinds of Christian programming that now uh, are provided uh, for uh, our membership in a number of ways that way. We're talking this afternoon with Bob Riken. He's vice president of Christian Mission Advancement and chaplain at the Columbia Willamette YMCA. And as you've been hearing, they're doing so much in our community that you may not have been aware of. But in addition to that, putting Christian back into those four very familiar letters, YMCA. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back to finish up our conversation. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, and we've been talking about the Young Men's Christian Association. The letters you may be familiar with, but all that they do here in the Columbia Willamette area may be somewhat surprising to you. And to uh, recognize that they have uh, worked to put the Christian emphasis back into the uh, the program. It, it ministers to everyone in our community, regardless of background, um, but really does provide an opportunity for people to have a connection. They first of all, experience the love of Christ through the programs that are being offered, but also to have a a personal connection as well. I've been talking with Bob Riken, who is the vice president of Christian Mission Advancement and a chaplain uh, with Columbia Willamette YMCA. Well, I have to tell you, it's just exciting to me to hear all that's being done in our community and to know that this is done as an extension of the love of Christ in serving people in uh, the various areas right here uh, among us. Is this a, a trend that we're seeing all across the country, or is this unique to uh, to the Oregon or the Portland uh, metro area? Uh, and is there a connection with others that are emphasizing the Christian part of the YMCA as well? Yes, there there really is. And like I said, I think uh, when you look at the history of the Y, uh, you could probably pretty well document that prior to World War II, right after World War One, was where kind of the C part got to push aside. And so it's been eight or nine decades 
where the sea has been, in some cases, almost non-existent. But we're seeing that uh, continuing to become alive and well across the country. Uh, And in fact, uh, once we began to see that focus established here in Portland, it was interesting. There have been numbers of YMCAs around the country. Uh, Many people kind of have this idea of the Northwest as kind of being this Mm -hmm. dark pagan uh, part of our country. And to hear what's happening in the Portland YMCA, it's kind of a a head scratcher for some saying, wow, this is really amazing. But uh, it's happening uh, across the country. And actually, uh, out of our offices, uh, from our leadership, uh, largely led by our CEO, Bob Hall, and others, uh, leaders like him across the country, uh, established in 2012 what was called the U.S. Mission Network. And that particular uh, focus uh, was to... uh, uh, begin to to carry that message of the C priority back into the YMCA. And in 2013, uh, U.S. Mission Network hired their first national director who actually housed out of our office here. And his assignment was to go across the country, uh, meet with various YMCAs and our executive leadership in Chicago and other significant parts of the country and uh, and share with them uh, this aspect of the C priority And through that mission network, there have been many uh, uh, YMCA's that have expressed an interest in in maybe developing a spiritual director or some capacity of like a chaplain in their association. And uh, it's been a a great work. Uh, There's a group of chaplains that meet every year uh, from around the country that gather to strategize, talk about how we can strengthen one another and move uh, the sea forward. And so I think there is a healthy, uh, significant work of God uh, moving through the YMCA across the country. And uh, I've often thought, if you remember Ezekiel's vision, as he was looking Mm -hmm. over that valley of dry bones and the spirit of God was speaking to him and he was interacting and uh, the conversation went, the idea being the can those dry bones ever live again? And I kind of see that as a, as maybe an example of the YMCA where years ago it had a strong Christian focus, maybe uh, through various ways uh, began to see that maybe uh, pushed aside to some degree and, uh, and, and maybe has become like that vision that Ezekiel had of now a myriad of dry bones. But I think we're seeing uh, life coming back. Uh, to the why in that way. We serve a great community with great opportunities in many capacities through sports, health and wellness, uh, community-type strengthening activities. And I think to bring the sea back into the uh, realm of that environment is only going to strengthen and enhance and and give us a greater impact, uh, long-lasting. Mm-hmm. in the community in which we serve. And so that, I think, makes the the why unique in, in many ways, that providing all of these great services to a great needy community and weaving into that need the opportunity to understand what it means to have an under, a relationship with Christ or to see these Christian principles inculcated in their life through the various things that they're doing is pretty exciting. Oh, it is absolutely exciting. You know, I'm thinking about the fact that, as you made reference earlier, we are considered the least churched 
area in the country. And so a lot of men and women who find themselves with great needs are not perhaps going to the church uh, to find some spiritual guidance. And the YMCA can certainly serve as a conduit where people make that connection and then ultimately have the opportunity uh, to connect with the church. Does the YMCA here in the Columbia Willamette area, do you have connections with churches in the community as well? Yes, we continue to sort of cultivate relationships with, with, with the church. Like I said, in our one in Vancouver, we have a church mm-hmm. that actually is using our facility, but we have we have offered numerous Christian programming in our various facilities as well uh, by uh, clergy that have even come to us and have said, you know, maybe a person wouldn't come to my church, but but if I could if I could use your facility to to use you know, to do this seminar or this teaching program, uh, that would be great. And so there's opportunities uh, to use our facility by uh, various pastors or church leaders uh, where uh, maybe someone would be a little bit intimidated, maybe in, uh, not inclined to go to a church, but they, they wouldn't bother, you know, they wouldn't be bothered by going yeah. to a YMCA. And so it's giving us, too, a first line of opportunity to reach a group of people that maybe the local church, at least in its initial attempt, uh, would not be able to uh, reach out to. You mentioned that you got a grant from um, the Murdoch Foundation in establishing the chaplaincy with the Columbia Willamette YMCA. How is uh, the YMCA here uh, and uh, perhaps other places as well? How is it funded? You're not receiving uh, government money for this program. How does the YMCA function? Yes, we are 501c3. And so we 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 need to raise our own uh, our support for the work we do. Mm -hmm. And so we get that through foundations, grants. And uh, and various kinds of fundraising efforts uh, that that we do, and so uh, actually uh, we scholarshiped. I think it was over a million point three hmm. uh, last year, uh, raising money for those that could not afford or maybe couldn't uh, afford completely uh, the work that we do. And so we try to uh, to raise funds that would provide opportunities for families in communities uh, of any economic strata that would want to come and be a part of our 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 work that they would have opportunity and so uh, those would be primary ways in which we would raise money to to keep the YMCA functioning in our community we're just days away from the end of school and I would imagine there are parents listening who think man maybe the YMCA has something to offer our family in terms of activities during the summer months and beyond so I want to ask you two things. How can our listeners um, find out about what's available for them, for their families that they might want to participate in? And my second question is, how can we pray for the ongoing work that you're doing in helping to restore the sea and the YMCA? You bet. I think probably the best way for people to contact us would be uh, on our website, uh, which is YMCACW. The CW stands for Col- Columbia Willamette. Mm-hmm. So it's YMCACW.org. And there they would be able to, uh, you know, look at our various camping programs, our uh, our child care, our youth sports, our health and wellness opportunities, as well as uh, our Christian emphasis as well. And they would be able to 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 go through those and mm-hmm. see what would be available this summer. Yeah, we're just gearing up for our big summer program. I think this past week was our first week out at uh, a summer camp at our Camp Collins work, and we will be busy every week through that opportunity. So uh, folks ought to check that out and look at that. And and then I would say 
we certainly would always during the summer pray and ask God for safety as as uh, our many programs that we're yes. a part of, but also pray that we would continue to uh, be a strong presence of Christ's love and uh, and presence in our community and continue to provide opportunities for relationship building with our great community in many, many ways where uh, maybe uh, churches initially uh, would have a little bit more difficulty in that way. But uh, to pray that we would be able to reach out well into our community and and be that catalyst to restore and strengthen, uh, bring back the vibrance of the C part of the YMCA. Well, I'm I'm so excited and happy to have you here and to share the story with our listeners. Again, that's YMCACW.org for more information. And let's remember uh, them in prayer. Bob Reichen, I'm so grateful that you were open to what the Lord was leading you to do. And the timing, uh, which is always perfect when he's orchestrating things, was just right. And for serving our community, thank you. And thanks for being with us well, today. Well, thanks. It's been great being Appreciate with it. you. And uh, have a great and safe summer. Thank you. You too. We'll have you back. Okay. okay. Thank you. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Austin, Texas, the governor there, Greg Abbott, has signed into law House Bill 16. It's known as the Texas Born Alive Infant Protection Act. It ensures the legal protection of infants who are born alive in attempted abortions. And yes, it does happen. The law will go into effect September 1st of this year. The legislation states, and I quote, the physician must exercise the same degree of professional skill, care, and diligence to preserve the life and health of a child as a reasonably diligent and conscientious physician would render to any other child born alive at the same gestational age. Well, House Bill 16 also requires a physician to ensure that the infant be immediately transferred and admitted to a hospital. Now, it doesn't speak to parenting. You don't have to uh, parent the child that uh, that was um, who survived a uh, an abortion, but the physician does have an obligation to um, provide the care that he would any other infant under similar uh, gestational age and circumstance. Anyone who violates the law by withholding the appropriate medical treatment will be charged with a third-degree felony and must pay a fine of at least $100,000. Well, hearings for the bill were delayed earlier this year when four female Democrat lawmakers refused to attend on the day of testimonies from abortion survivors, Gianna Jessen and Claire Culwell. And while there is a federal law, the 2002 Born Alive Infants Protection Act, it doesn't impose any penalties for abortionists who fail to comply with that law. Now, it also doesn't mandate life-saving treatment for abortion survivors, including neonatal resuscitation or immediate transportation to the nearest hospital. This bill in Texas goes that much further. Well, earlier this year, the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act fell short of the 60 votes needed to move forward in the Senate, with 53 senators voting in favor of and 44 against. Well, the legislation would have required health care providers to first exercise the same degree of care as reasonably provided to any other child born alive at the same gestational age and to transport the child to the hospital. Violation of the law would result in penalties of a criminal fine up to five years in prison or both. Individuals who specifically prevent the survival of an abortion survivor could be prosecuted for murder. The bill would also require 
the mandatory reporting of violations. Well, says Matt Staver, founder and chairman of Liberty Council, I applaud Texas legislators for protecting the lives of precious babies that have survived an abortion and are fighting for life. If this protection is not implemented, the abortion provider simply backs away from the table and leaves the baby to suffer and die. We must continue the fight to make the womb a safe place once again in America. Well, Liberty Council uh, helped uh, move this legislation forward uh, in the state of Texas. Now, it seems rather peculiar that such events would have to be stated in law, as one would assume with the Hippocratic Oath, which I'm not sure resonates anymore with um, with physicians. But nonetheless, one would assume that that would be the response. But if you are in the practice of uh, the regular practice of aborting children, I suppose it's not too much of a leap to imagine that a child who is born alive following an attempted abortion could simply be abandoned. So, uh, again, it's not uh, not altogether surprising. Well, California lawmakers uh, are in the uh, process of attempting to tell pastors what to preach from their pulpit on LGBT behavior and identities. Well, tomorrow morning before the Assembly Judiciary Committee, Assemblyman uh, Evan Lowe plans to argue for a resolution that tells religious leaders in California what they should preach from their pulpits. Well, the Assembly Concurrent Resolution 99, again, this is in California, calls on counselors, pastors, religious workers, educators, and institutions with great moral influence to stop um, perpetuating the idea that something is wrong with LGBT identities or sexual behavior. AGC, uh, or rather ACR 99, also condemns attempts to change unwanted same-sex attraction or gender confusion as unethical, harmful, and leading to high rates of suicide. Now, if an individual decides that he or she does not want uh, to pursue unwanted same-sex attraction, for example, uh, this law, um, among other things, would prevent that individual from seeking help of any kind from anyone who might uh, seek to uh, provide that kind of counseling. Uh, Two once-gay pastors, Ken Williams and Elizabeth Wanning, uh, plan to testify against the resolution, calling it discriminatory against people like themselves who overcame suicidal thoughts by following their faith away from their LGBT identities. Now, the interesting thing is that there is no room for individuals who decide that that is not the lifestyle they want to to uh, to live. Um, there's no room for that kind of decision. There's no freedom to acknowledge uh, that conflict. They now lead a ministry called Equipped to Love uh, that helps others like themselves find health and wholeness. Well, last year, Assemblyman Lowe introduced AB 2943. Uh, and in that particular piece of legislation, it was a bill that declared advertising, offering to engage in or engaging in sexual orientation change efforts with an individual as illegal under state's consumer fraud law. Uh, After receiving strong opposition from numerous Christian leaders, faith-based organizations like the California Family Council, Lowe killed his own bill in hopes of coming up with a compromise. Instead of introducing another bill this year, he proposed ACR 99, which he worked on uh, with a select group of California religious leaders, according to an email sent out by his office last week. A resolution does not have the force of law, but is simply a legislative statement made in an attempt to influence public opinion. Well, despite the support some uh, faith leaders are giving to uh, Lowe's resolution, other pastors and religious leaders with traditional views on gender and sexuality are publicly opposing ACR 99, besides Wanning, who wrote um, the not-so-subtle discrimination of ACR 99, which was an article published there. Williams uh, also uh, 
wrote other uh, pieces in trying to explain the position of those within the traditional um, faith community. Well, a coalition of professional counselors, doctors, attorneys, faith-based nonprofits have also signed on to a letter. Um, it, it points out the resolution's inaccuracies and it threats uh, uh, its threats to basic liberty. People should have the forum and freedom to pursue what brings them uh, true happiness and joy. ACR 99 is trying to cut people off from their own pathway to happiness, writes the coalition. Well, the letter goes on to provide proof that traditional faiths are not the cause of high suicide rates among those identifying as LGBT. It points out that professional organizations agree that same-sex attraction and den- gender dysphoria are not simply biologically caused. They often change. And contrary to misrepresentations, therapists who are open to a client's goal of change use non-aversive, well-established mainstream practices and evidence-based treatments for trauma and addictions uh, used um, by professional therapists worldwide. Well, after um, the uh, hearing before the Assembly Judiciary Committee, um, the fate of AC-99 will be presented on the floor of the Assembly, most likely on Thursday at some point during the day. Well, tomorrow on the program, and for that matter, Friday as well, Mike Lee will uh, be filling in uh, as I'm going to be at the Restored Hope Network Conference in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I've been invited uh, for the third time to MC that event. It's not a political event. It's not designed to deal with uh, political issues. It is one in which individuals who have experienced the freedom of Christ of choosing to live a morally and sexually pure uh, life that's consistent with a biblical worldview come together to be ministered to, to minister to one another, to learn and to worship. And I'll have to tell you, the worship at this event and I've been to several of them around the country um, over the years. The worship is incredible. So I'm looking forward to hosting that event. I'll be flying out tomorrow and hosting on Friday and Saturday and back Saturday evening and in studio on Monday. On Friday, a trio of fun, James Blend, Justin Mansfield and Sam Whittington will host a Friday fun show. So I hope you can join us for that. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.